The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 4. I'm your host, Otis Jivey. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about spectral spaces, undead antagonists, forest fiends, and nefarious nature. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, Settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Lucretia Vestea, and is a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights original, debuting here tonight on my program. In it, we'll meet Casey, a young man who finds himself in an odd place out of time and space. Will he and his loved ones make sense of the senseless before it's too late? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you The Back Rooms. Hello? Hello? Somebody? Anybody? Can anybody hear me? Please? Please, get me out of here. Casey stirred. He couldn't see anything, but he could hear loud and clear. Dove, is that you? Of course it was. Her voice was unmistakable. Case? 
Casey, where are you? I'm right here, Duff. Follow my voice. Casey was shaking in his sleep. Lucidity was creeping in, but the nightmare's grip was strong. I can't. I'm, I'm stuck. Casey, you have to get me out of here. Say you'll come get me out of here. Casey's heart was hammering inside his head, but he couldn't hear it over the scratches. Out of where, Dove? Where are you stuck? He knew that it was just a dream. Dove was dead. Not only that, but it had been an open casket funeral, and Dove's coffin was padded everywhere. The scratches weren't making any sense, so they couldn't be anything other than a figment of his imagination, as was the scared voice of his dead friend. The back rooms, Casey. I'm stuck in the back rooms. Casey woke up drenched in sweat. Again. It had to have been the sound of heavy rain hitting the lacquered wood. Not the general sobbing, nor the priest straining his voice over the wrath of Mother Nature. It couldn't have been car noises or the like, that's for sure. The cemetery was nowhere near traffic-ridden streets. No, it was the rain falling on the coffin lid. That had to be the sound that Casey made feel so uneasy. Dove's grace was admired by classmates and teachers alike. Casey pressed his lips together and shook his head absent-mindedly. Grace, grace of all things, was brought up at Dove's funeral. What had Dove been like? Smart, yes. Strong, very. Beautiful, without a shadow of a doubt. But graceful? Her back was always drooping like she was the human version of a question mark, and she never saw a problem in playing soccer wearing a skirt. If Dove's spirit was present, the likelihood of her face-palming herself was staggering. Casey chuckled to himself at that mental image. His father smacked him over the head. Pull yourself together, he hissed from between clenched teeth. Casey was very well put together. He was so well put together that he was the only one to recognize the eulogy for the garbage it was. Whoever wrote it relied too much on their Google search. Casey eyed Dove's mother. The woman was devastated, surely. But this wasn't a funeral for her daughter, but a funeral for the daughter she wished she had. The rain was unrelenting. Casey pictured Dove standing beside the big oak tree, ten feet from where he was, dressed in her maroon overalls, mocking every word coming out of the priest's mouth. Dove had been the funniest person Casey ever knew, mostly on Monday mornings when she would reenact the Sunday service she had attended the day prior. Dove was not like those other kids who were forced to go to church because their parents said so. No, no. The Sunday service was her favorite time of the week. Not only would she listen carefully to everything the priest said, so she could debunk it later, but she also paid close attention to the other people attending. Dove loved calling out hypocrisy, and nothing quenched her thirst as churchgoers did, although selectively she thrived on gossip. Theater critic, every hour Dove spent studying, Every time she opened a Word document to write something that wasn't school-related, 
every time their D&D squad would talk about dreams and aspirations, Dove would mention she'll be a theater critic someday. Grace? Theater critics are not graceful. Grace is surrounded by pastel colors. Dove was as rich in pigment as Indian ink. Why didn't the priest mention that instead? That her biggest passion was writing, and that she had more drive than Quicksilver in a sauna. Why didn't anybody point out that only four of Dove's seven cousins showed up? Why did Dove, of all people, have to die? Why was the world so unfair? Why was it raining? There were too many people crying, just for show, and Casey didn't want to contribute to the masquerade. Either way, the tears wouldn't come. Casey felt too uneasy to cry. There was something about the noise around him. It wasn't the sobbing nor the priest straining his voice over the wrath of Mother Nature. Casey kept telling himself that it was the hard raindrops against the lid of the coffin that had to have been it. That had to be what sounded like scratching. Three weeks had passed since Dove's funeral, and the nightmares just got worse and worse. Casey still couldn't see anything, but Dove's voice reverberated within the confines of his mind, louder than it would have if she were right next to him. Hello? Dream Casey was set on not responding this time around. Hello? Is anyone there? Casey felt his temperature rise, but he managed to keep his dream version of himself quiet. He was not going to interact with his dead friend. Not tonight. Casey was sick and tired of feeling like he hadn't slept in years. He was sick and tired of dreading nightfall, knowing full well that the torment will start anew once he lowered his head on the cool pillow. Can anybody hear me? Please, please get me out of here. Case. Dove was crying. Casey, please, please talk to me. I'm so scared, Casey. I'm begging you. Something was tickling Casey at the temples. Sweat or tears, he couldn't tell. That sensation should have been enough to wake anybody up, but as always... Dove's calling from the other realm had no mercy. I need you, Casey. Please, please get me out of here. He knew he shouldn't give in to his mind playing tricks on him. The real Dove was six feet under, feeding maggots and fertilizing the soil around her. Even so, Casey's will was hanging on by a thread as fragile as spider webs. Thought you loved me. The thread broke. Don't you love me, Casey? Of course I do. Then get me out of here. Say you'll get me out of the back rooms. Casey woke up drenched in sweat again. Not only that, but he also was crying and shaking from the top of his head to the tips of his fingers. The school cafeteria was pretty empty. Casey's friends were all sitting at their usual spot, alongside the elephant in the room, which was Dove's unoccupied seat. Karina, one of the two girls at the table, took her yogurt cup and almost slammed it on Casey's tray as soon as he sat down. What the hell are you doing? 
Casey wanted to know. Karina's face was stern and her voice even more so. You need to eat. Even though the girl was one year his junior, she acted like everybody's mother. I am eating. Casey pointed to the almost portion of mashed potatoes in front of him. Angie and Callum exchanged a glance and both of them placed their muffins on Casey's tray. Angie also gave him her soda for good measure. You guys are being ridiculous. I don't want your food. Well, that's too bad because you're having it whether you like it or not. Casey was about to return the items to their respective givers, but Brian stopped him with a soft shove of his hand. Please, man. We all miss her, but you can't go on like this. Casey took a second to look at his friends. Everybody looked bad. The bags under his own eyes were the worst. But his friends weren't looking like they were about to walk into a photo shoot either. Brian was so pale, the contrast to his freckles made him look like somebody sprayed motor oil on his face. Karina stopped wearing jewelry altogether, and for someone with five facial piercings, that's saying a lot. Callum and Angie used to be all over each other during lunch. Now, even spotting them holding hands had become rare. Casey hovered over his tray. He said nothing, but him opening Karina's yogurt cup was all the reassurance his friends needed. The thanks went unspoken, just like the many sentiments that strengthened their bond in the past weeks. The lunch break was halfway over until... Stop. Angie didn't mean to say it out loud. She was taken aback when four pairs of eyes met hers inquiringly. Callum squeezed her knee. Everything all right? Angie looked at her boyfriend with reindeer eyes. Her lips started to quiver, and she shook her head slowly. I just wanted to stop. Callum brushed a strain of her hair behind her ear, and Angie took that as an invitation to lean into him. They will, baby. Just give it time. The moment they shared looked way too intimate to be interpreted by outsiders, yet Karina couldn't help herself. They? Callum threw a poisonous glance. Don't, Kay. Not now. But Angie didn't share his apprehension. She detached herself from Callum's side and brushed both hands over her face in an attempt at pulling herself together. Ever since Dove died, I've been having these dreams. Casey felt his throat constrict. They're weird. Like, Dove is technically never in them, and I don't hear her or anything, but it's like I know she's there, and I know she's scared. Angie's voice broke on the last two words. You don't have to do this, baby. Callum stroked her back, but that only seemed to make her more upset. But I want to just... Everybody was holding their breaths. It's these rooms. Casey felt his heart beating inside his skull. And they're repetitive, like room, next to room, next to room, like underground parking lots that are divided into sections, but narrow and never-ending. And there are no doors or windows, just rooms beyond rooms. Like it's this hallway 
with huge mirrors at both ends, so it just looks like it goes on and on and on. Room, next to room, next to room. And it's so odd. Everything is like this old, ugly yellow. And it's bright, but not that nice brightness. It's that abandoned hospital light. The one where you don't know if it's safer with the lights on or off. Angie was out of breath. I'm not crazy. Nobody said that, baby. I'm not crazy. Half of the cafeteria turned to look their way. Nobody thinks you're crazy, Angie. Karina stretched her hand over the table to caress her friends. And if they do, she turned her head toward the onlookers. Let me at them. Casey hid his shaking hands under the table. Everybody did their best to comfort Angie until lunch break was almost over. Callum, Angie, and Karina stood up, trays in hand, ready to leave for their next class. A couple said goodbye, but Casey didn't hear anything. You guys okay? Karina was looking at Brian and Casey. Brian smiled and reassured her that he'll join her once Casey's finished eating. Karina shrugged, squeezed Casey's shoulder, and left the boys alone. Casey and Brian were never particularly close, but they shared an understanding for each other that was hard to explain. Both were men of few words, and both appreciated the same things in life and other people. Okay, man, you don't look so good. Brian eyed Casey carefully. The stare was focused, and his face had a little more color to it than it did an hour prior. Yeah, 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 I'm good. Casey tried easing a smile into his statement, but Brian's stare was so intense, Casey could feel it prickle on his skin. That's when he noticed it, too. Brian was shaking. So, uh, Angie's dreams. Weird, huh? Yeah, poor thing. The bell was supposed to ring any second now. The last of the students in the cafeteria had already gotten up to return to Trey's. Neither Brian nor Casey broke their stare down. Brian disrupted the silence, however. What about you? What about me? Any weird dreams lately? Casey felt the pits of his shirt grow cold and wet. No. What makes you ask that? His tone was way harsher than it intended to be. Brian flinched a little, and just like that, his eyes grew wide and he broke the contact. Sorry, I didn't mean anything by it. I just thought you looked like... Oh, never mind. You thought I looked like what? Casey moved closer to his friend. Brian seemed to reassess the situation and looked like he couldn't get away from it fast enough. Sorry, dude, my bad. I misinterpreted something. Just forget it, okay? Brian rose to leave, and Casey shot up and grabbed his arm with force to bruise. Tell me, goddammit! The lunch lady called out to them, reminding them of something or other that they should or shouldn't be doing. Tell me, please. Casey's voice was so quiet he barely heard it himself. Staring into Brian's face, he realized that that which he initially interpreted as confrontation was in fact despair. Brian was on the verge of a mental breakdown, more so than Angie, and probably even more than Casey himself. I have them too, man. 
Casey didn't need to ask. He knew what Brian meant. The dreams. The yellow rooms. I also felt Dove there. The lunch lady yelled again. At first, you think the wallpaper is just a, an ugly, outdated print. Casey felt nauseous. But that's no print. Brian's face was so close, his freckles were out of focus. The cries for help scratched into the walls by the people who were stuck there. Boys! Brian and Casey jumped as if a shotgun had been fired next to their ears. They scurried out of the cafeteria with mumbled apologies. Casey and Brian were in different classes, so Casey ran to his as fast as he could, ignoring his friend calling after him. Casey soldiered on through the rest of the school day, pretending to be attentive during class, and purposefully avoiding his friends. Once he got home, nothing he did, be it homework or gaming, made daylight diminish fast enough. And that's because, for the first time, since his friend passed away, Casey looked forward to going to bed. Hello? Hello? Is someone there? Casey focused on steadying his breathing. Yes. Case? Casey, is that you? Yes, Dove, it's me. Casey, oh, thank God you're back. You have to get me out of here. Where are you? I'm in the back rooms. Casey fought to keep his thoughts aligned. Look around. What do you see? Yellow. Everything is yellow. That confirmed it. Neither Casey, nor Angie, or Brian were going mad. Dove was indeed stuck somewhere, and it was not beneath the earth in a narrow rectangular box. Everything is so yellow. Dove, tell me more. What else can you see? Rooms everywhere. They never end. It's like I'm running a replay. These rooms, where are they? I... I don't know. Stay with me, all right? I need you to concentrate. Where were you before? Before the back rooms? I don't remember. How did you get there? I don't remember. Can you remember something? Anything? A face? An object? Something? I don't remember. I don't know. Is there somebody else with you? Dove? Not somebody. What do you mean? It's something. Something is in here with me. I can't see it, but it's here. It's playing with me, watching, following. Casey felt his consciousness slipping in. Casey, you have to get me out of here. Say you'll get me out of here. But I don't know where you are. I'm in the back rooms. Dove, that's not helping. Come on, focus. You keep calling them the back rooms, not just the rooms. You know something. Now help me out here. Where are you? Where are these back rooms? There was silence. Lucidity was coming down hard, and Casey never thought he'd dread waking up from one of these nightmares. Dove, where are the back rooms? And Dove answered, Everywhere. The back rooms are everywhere. 
Casey was not drenched in sweat when he woke up. His sheets, on the other hand, were ripped to shreds. Two more months had passed since Dove died, and for the first time, since her funeral, it was raining. Casey remembered the sounds made by the raindrops hitting the lowered coffin and mistaking them for scratches. He still had the nightmares every once in a while, but since the night he tried communicating with her more, the intensity of Dove subsided. Also, he began having normal dreams again. Dove's pleas would morph into grunts and mumbles, and the nightmare would melt into a halfway-muted soundtrack for another dream, one that provided both sound and imagery. It was like Casey's subconsciousness was slowly yet surely winning the fight against these nightmares, allowing him to sleep soundly again. Casey's friends were doing better, too, and she began to smile again, and she and Callum resumed showcasing their teenage affection during breaks or outside of school. Brian also seemed to be doing better. Casey and he never brought up the dreams again, and judging by his much healthier appearance, Brian probably stopped having them altogether. Karina was Karina, heart of gold, shell of rock. Nobody could accuse her of not grieving the loss of her friend, but she was the first to recover after Dove's passing and gave nobody a reason to worry about her emotional well-being. All in all, five of them were doing fine, and even though moving on was still ways ahead, they were on the right track. There had to be a logical explanation for the semblance of their dreams. More than likely, Angie, Brian, and Casey had seen the same movie or read the same piece of fiction a long time ago, thus triggering similar brain activity in their heads when Dove died. Karina might have had dreams about Dove, too. Callum as well. Karina's parents probably did, too, but that didn't mean that they must have spotted some inexplicable crack between life and death. That would have sounded a million types of stupid. Casey was too old and too smart to believe in paranormal nonsense. Dove was dead, but he wasn't. He would miss her greatly, but this was the first day of the rest of his life, and he planned on living it to the fullest, just like his best friend would have wanted him to. It was Friday afternoon. Casey and his friends were going to meet up at Carina's for a game of D&D. They hadn't played in ages and thought that it would be cool to pick it up again. Casey had gotten home from school, showered, ate, and just as he finished brushing his teeth, his phone vibrated with an incoming message. The message was from their group chat, probably Callum asking which flavored Cheetos to bring, or a photo from Karina showing off the setup she installed. Casey opened the message and dropped his phone with a scream. The screen cracked, but nothing else was affected by the hard fall. The phone vibrated again, and again, and again. It sounded like a chainsaw against the bathroom tiles. Casey himself had fallen and crawled on the bathroom floor until his back hit a wall. He began to sob. The phone kept vibrating from a plethora of incoming messages, all from a number that was supposed to be inactive and stay inactive forever. Dove was messaging the group chat in all caps. The first message had been a haunting picture full of yellow. Casey's fragile inner peace, 
the one he fought so hard to regain after the nightmares subsided, crumbled. He got himself off the floor, grabbed his still vibrating phone, and dashed out of the house, fully forgetting to lock the door or grab his bike. Casey ran through the rain to Karina's house like his life depended on it. The muscles in his legs were screaming and his lungs were burning, but nothing mattered except the phone that was still vibrating furiously in his pant pocket. Once he reached his destination, Casey dashed through the front door, completely forgetting to greet Karina's parents, and flew up the stairs to where his friend's room was. Everybody was already there, seated in a circle on the floor. Did you guys see them? Everybody froze. Casey was soaked to the skin and looked like he was about to hurt somebody. We have to help. I'm serious. She's stuck there. We have to find her and get her out of there. Kay, I need your laptop. Karina frowned. Brian, unsure what to do, pointed to the laptop on Karina's writing desk. Casey wasted no time in closing the Spotify playlist and typing shaman in the Google search bar. Does any of you guys know what she means by back rooms? I asked where they are, and she said everywhere. So I'm thinking it's a state of mind or something. But how can it be if she's not alone in there and the walls are scratched? Like, what are we missing here? Casey turned to face his friends. All four of them looked dumbfounded. You all right, dude? Brian got off the floor and took a tentative step in Casey's direction. You need a towel or... No, I'm not all right. Check your phones, people. The four of them rummaged through their pockets in search of their phones. They all looked at their screens, then at each other. What are we looking for exactly? Callum sounded genuinely confused. Somebody commented on my latest Instagram post, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you mean. Angie turned her phone to provide evidence for her statement. Casey was on the verge of losing his mind. Guys, are you fucking kidding me? It's Dove. Dove sent us a million messages in our group chat just now. Angie shivered, and Callum threw a protective arm around her frame. In an instant, Brian and Karina were livid. Casey, Brian spoke with the tiniest of voices. Not cool, dude. Yeah, Karina sounded angry. Whatever you're trying to do, you need to stop right now. People, do you hear yourselves? Casey snatched his phone out of his pant pocket and tried unlocking it. Nothing. All the screen had to offer was a spiderweb on black glass. Oh, shit! Casey scanned Karina's room and rushed to the plug that had had her phone charger in it. It's not working. What the fuck? This piece of shit worked fine just seconds ago. Casey almost tackled Brian. Unlock your phone and give it to me. Casey, you really need to calm down now. Nevertheless, Brian did as he was told and handed Casey his unlocked phone. Casey pressed the icon for the group chat and stared for what felt like an eternity to the last message posted around the time he was brushing his teeth. 
Callum had sent a photo of the Cheetos aisle with the caption, which one? Bastard. He deleted them. What? Deleted what? Did you just call me? Angie, I need your phone. Angie was a step ahead of him, however, as were Callum and Karina. All three of them shoved their phones into Casey's face, showing a message identical to the one on Brian's phone from their group chat. There was a knock at the door. Karina, is everything all right? Everything's fine, Dad. Just give us a minute. Casey's heart was shattered. Why? Why would you guys do this? She posted a picture of her surroundings, and she finally found a way to contact us. She needs us. We need to get her out of these rooms. Casey turned to Angie. They're yellow, Angie, just like you said. Yellow and never-ending. Okay, enough. Back off. Callum rose to his feet. Angie finally got rid of her insomnia from this bullshit. You are not bringing that up again. Karina, I'm coming in. Karina's six-foot-four tall father stepped into the room, looking every bit as angry as his daughter. Karina's mother was right behind him. What's going on here? The mother inquired. Casey was just saying goodbye to everybody. Karina's voice stung like frostbite. Weren't you, Casey? Casey felt his eyes water. He bit his lip, and in a last attempt at tugging at his friend's heartstrings, he turned towards Brian. Tell them. Brian was so white he almost glowed. Brian, tell them. Tell them what you told me. The rooms, the yellow walls, the scratches. Tell them. Brian shook his head twice and shrugged. Sorry, dude. I have no idea what you're talking about. Something within Casey collapsed. Without another word, he went to get his phone and walked out of Karina's house with apologies he didn't mean. Casey's retina stung. Blinking was difficult. The world was asleep while he served the blue fluorescent lights of digital worldwide knowledge, searching for something that might make him get to his friend. What color does yellow symbolize? On one hand, yellow stands for freshness, happiness, positivity, honor, and joy. But on the other hand, it represents cowardice and deceit. Not helpful. What is the spiritual meaning of yellow? Personal power and fulfillment, abundance, courage, and self-confidence. Yellow represents happiness, clarity, and sunlight. If that were so, Dove, wherever she was, would have been fine. Casey considered stealing his mom's credit card because he knew that the money he saved up wouldn't cover the things he needed to buy. An EMF reader, a thermal camera, maybe an Ouija board. Google was not all helpful, though. Casey found interesting articles and clips with and regarding people who survived clinical death that finding these people on social media was a different process altogether. The ones he did manage to find had ridiculous privacy settings. Casey couldn't speak to anybody who might have seen the other side, 
so he was just as blind as in the nightmares with Dove. Casey yawned. He tried starting his phone one last time, but it remained unresponsive. He wished he could have had a better look at the pictures of the back rooms. Maybe he could have spotted something Dove missed. Maybe he could extract it out of his phone somehow, upload it somewhere, and do a reverse image search of it. And if that didn't work, well... He wasn't the world's best artist, but he could throw together five lines in an attempt at recreating it and ask Reddit for clues. He'd try anything, no matter how ridiculous. Casey yawned again and knew that it was time to go to sleep. He shut off his computer, got into bed, and closed his eyes. Hello? Casey opened his eyes and sat upright. He was alone in his room and still very much awake. Dove? He looked around but saw nothing. Dove, are you in here? Casey got out of bed and looked under his desk, under the bed and in his wardrobe. He even opened the window to see if there was somebody outside. Nothing. Casey got into bed again and closed his eyes anew. Dove, can you hear me? Yes. Casey, oh, thank God. I thought you left. No, I'm, I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Casey was not asleep. He knew that for a fact. He still couldn't see his friend, but he could hear her as if she were right next to him. That was good. It meant less trouble for him to get a hold of her. It was so hard to reach you lately. Where were you? I'm sorry, Dove, but I'm here now and I won't leave you again. Help me, Casey. Help me. I will, I promise. I think I came across something that might help. Look around, Dove. Can you see? Will you get me out of here? I don't know, but I'll try. Look for a case. Casey, my Casey. What? What is it? You love me, Casey. Casey swallowed the lump in his throat. Yes. Will you get me out of here? I'm trying, Dove, but you really need to... Shh. No more trying. You tried enough. I now need you to do. So, will you? Will you get me out of the back rooms? Casey remembered Angie's pathetic eyes glossy from the tears that were about to happen. He remembered Callum acting up in front of the girlfriend who was out of his league, making her feel like she needs him. Casey remembered Corinna's self-importance and shitty attitude. Last but not least, Casey remembered Brian, dumb, quiet, treacherous Brian. In the midst of all this was Dove, smart, strong, beautifully ungraceful Dove, Brian's voice echoed in Casey's head. Sorry, dude, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. Yes? Yes. Say it. Say it, please. I need to hear it. Yes, I will. No, Casey. I need to hear you say, Yes, Dove. I will get you out of the back rooms. Yes, Dove. I will get you out of the back rooms. 
The scratching stopped. Dove began to cry. Thank you. I got you, Dove. Don't worry. We'll do this together. Now look around. Can you see a light switch anywhere? Silence. Dove, focus. A light switch. Can you see it? Silence. Dove? Case opened his eyes and the first thing he registered was light. Casey squinted, wondering if one of his parents heard him talking to himself and came to check on him. But then his eyes adjusted and the first thing he saw was yellow. No. Oh, no. Rooms beyond rooms beyond rooms in what had to be the most haunting color in existence. Casey got up on wobbly feet and felt dread expanding to every cell in his body. Dove! But Dove was no longer there, which is not to say that Casey was alone. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Back Rooms by author Lucretia Vistea. If you enjoyed that tale and would like to read more incredible originals like it, visit our new short horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com, where new content, much of it brand new, is uploaded each and every week and where you can vote on every tale to let us know what you think and submit your own for a chance to be featured. Not only will you find tales you've never seen before, but you'll get more information about the talents, such as Lucretia Vistea, that help bring them to life. Again, that's creepypastastories.com for your daily dose of darkness. From me and the team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, thanks for your support of indie horror and our latest project. Up next, we've got a second Twisted Tale for you. This one from an author we've featured before, who prefers to be known simply as Word Dogger. In his latest tale, we leave behind the Louisiana swamps. Uh, he took us on a journey through last time and confront an entirely new threat. Unfortunately for this tale's protagonist, this forest fiend's got just as many teeth and it's brought its friends. Without further ado, I present to you, The Wolves. 
I think there's three of them still out there. Three wolves. Aside from the one I've killed, I've only seen two at any given time, but they're distinct enough for me to tell them apart. There's three of them. We've been trapped in my cabin for two days now, and until the snow lets up, there's no way for us to know how much longer it'll be. My grandparents bought this cabin on Priestley Mountain, not far from Priestley Lake, right after the end of World War II, and our family has been making the drive north from Bangor to spend time here ever since. Some of my earliest childhood memories are from here, but none of them are anything like this. As far as I know, there aren't any wolf packs in Maine, but you'd see the occasional stray down from Canada. I've never known one to be aggressive, though. You'd see them watching you from a distance, but you couldn't approach them. These three wolves, though, they won't leave. I'm pretty sure they mean to have us. I should have known something was up if I'd only paid closer attention. My wife and I have been here for four days since Wednesday, and we started seeing rabbit animals on the first day. It's not common to see skunks this time of year, but we've seen three, all rabid. I had to shoot one of them. But then the firing pin of my granddaddy's old shotgun broke, and I don't have what I need to fix it. Our current predicament didn't start until Friday morning. We'd seen the weather reports, and they were forecasting that two separate squalls would be blowing in, one from Lake Ontario and the other from the Fleuve Saint-Laurent estuary. Our cabin is close to the northern tip of the lake, and there's only one road in and out of the area. If much snow falls, you're pretty much socked in. So Lucy and I decided to run to the store one last time, so we'd have all the provisions we'd need in case we got stuck here past the weekend. I got a case of yingling as well. Nothing like sitting by a warm fire with a cold beer on a winter night. It started snowing pretty hard while we were at the store, and the narrow little road that led to our place was already fairly treacherous as we ascended the mountainside on our way back. I call it a road... Uh, the truth is, it isn't much more than two ruts in the bush. Still, we made it to the cabin just before noon and parked the truck where we always do, under the open-sided carport about twenty paces from the front door. I carried several bags in and was about to start back for the beer when I heard a blood-curdling scream from the front yard. It was Lucy shrieking my name over and over. Frank! Frank! It still gives me chills just hearing it in my head. Immediately, I bolted back outside and saw Lucy lying on the ground with a wolf attached onto her leg. The wolf was trying to drag her away, apparently, and Lucy was doing her best to hold on, clawing through the snow at the frozen ground while kicking at the wolf. I knew I had an axe in the back of my truck, so I scooped it up as I ran past the carport and without giving much thought to the possibility that I might miss, I swung the axe down hard and split the wolf's skull. Lucy managed to push herself clear as the wolf twitched, its blood staining the snow. I bent down to her and she clenched up against me, sobbing into my chest. I looked down at her leg. The wolf had ripped through her jeans 
and had done some serious damage to her thigh. It was bleeding pretty good. I needed to get her in and tend to it. I also looked at the wolf, just like I feared it would. It had foamy saliva all around its mouth. No doubt it was rabid. My mind began to race. I needed to get her to the hospital for treatment as soon as possible. But how could I? It had already been snowing hard for better than an hour, and our little road, which was just over a mile long, would already be impassable, at least for those with common sense. Going down was a lot more treacherous than coming up. Maybe I could call for an ambulance, but they were less likely to make it safely down our road than we were. Maybe the sheriff? That concern got pushed aside, though, once Lucy let out another shriek and tried to force herself away from me. She said something like, Oh, no, and she pushed at my face till I turned to see what had put this new fear in her. There were two wolves coming down our drive at a trot right at us, and they weren't all that far away. I got to my feet quick as I could, bringing her up with me, and then I started for the cabin, her injured leg dragging a trail through the snow. I kept looking back over my shoulder. The wolves had broken into a full run by the time I drug Lucy up on the porch, and they had made it up to the steps by the time I'd gotten us in the cabin. A split second longer, and they would have made it to us. But I managed to slam the door shut just in time. I'm not sure why, but I locked the deadbolt, and then I took Lucy over to the couch. I could hear their claws clacking on the porch, but after a minute or so, they scampered away. Suddenly, I remembered we left the window over the sink open to let the air circulate while we were gone, so I raced over to it and slammed it shut, just as one of the wolves stood up on its hind legs and looked through it, right at me. My God, that wolf was big. It had to have been five feet from the ground to the base of that window. The wolf's eyes were intense, amber and evil, and I could see all his teeth in his malevolent grin. Also, just like his companion, his mouth was foamy. I banged on the glass and yelled, trying to scare him away, but he didn't scare. I did, though, because he stayed right there, looking right back at me. We stared through the glass at each other for more than just a second or two before he finally eased himself down and trotted back toward the front of the house. The cabin was essentially one story, one big den combined with the kitchen and one bedroom and a bathroom. There was a loft over the den. I made my way around the cabin in a hurry, checking that all the windows and doors were shut and latched. They were. Only then did I grab the first aid kit and make my way back to Lucy. She already had removed her pants by then, and was examining a wound. It was still bleeding, but once I'd cleaned off all the blood, I was relieved to find it wasn't as bad as I'd thought it'd be. It was still nasty, though, and would have required stitches were it not an animal bite. Never stitch up an animal bite, that's what I've always been told, so you won't sew up all that filthy bacteria from the animal's mouth. I held a damp compress on the wound until it finally stopped bleeding, and then I doused it with rubbing alcohol. Finally, I patted it dry and smeared it with antibacterial ointment. We considered laying gauze over the wound, but in the end decided to leave it open. 
Like me, she'd seen the wolf's mouth. That, coupled with the rabid skunks we'd seen earlier, had led her to the same conclusion I had. Rabies. Doctors say you should receive medical treatment for rabies within 72 hours of exposure. Some say 48. Otherwise, things could get pretty ugly. Depending on a number of factors, the incubation period for rabies could be days or weeks, occasionally even years. In any case, though, once a person started showing symptoms, the deal was done. As far as I knew, there had only been one case ever of a person recovering from rabies once they had become symptomatic, some young girl from India or someplace. Bottom line, we had to get her to a doctor, and soon. That was going to be easier said than done, however. First, it had already been snowing hard for several hours. Even with chains and four-wheel drive, it would be all but impossible to make it down the mountain without sliding off the road and over a ledge. Second, and perhaps more immediate, there were wolves outside our cabin, rabid wolves, and they seemed to be inordinately fixated on us. I doubted we would make it to our truck without being attacked. On the off chance there were possibilities I wasn't aware of, I called for an ambulance. As I suspected, though, they had no way of reaching us in the storm we were under. They couldn't even call in a chopper too hazardous to fly. I then called the sheriff and explained our situation. He was sympathetic to our plight, but he was all the way over in Ashland, nearly 50 miles from us. We both knew there was nothing he could do. As frustrating and as surreal as it was, it appeared we were stuck, at least until the storm broke. I went to the front door and peeked through the little window, and what I saw only added to the surreality of the situation. The wolf I'd killed was still there where we had left it, though already partially covered by snow. The strange thing was that the other two wolves, the big one and the other, were nuzzling the dead wolf, even licking at its brain through the grass my axe had made. I'd been around animals all my life, and never had I seen any of them behave that way toward one of their own dead. It was bizarre. The big one must have noticed me watching, because he raised his massive head and looked right at me and flinched away from the window. It was starting to feel a little chilly inside our cabin, so I threw another log into our stove, and that's when I discovered another potential problem. We only had half a dozen sticks of wood left. The rest was stacked about ten yards outside our kitchen door between two trees. Unless our uninvited guests decided to leave, it was going to be risky to get at it. On the other hand, it was already bone-chilling cold, and it was going to get colder once the sun went down. Much colder. We didn't talk much that afternoon. We both knew the score. I made us some food that evening, then we sat around contemplating our predicament. But once it got dark, I noticed that the dome light was on inside our truck. Lucy must have been attacked before she could close the door, because it was standing open. It was going to run the battery down unless I closed it. As I began to ponder if I could even consider such a move, though, one of the wolves rose up inside the cab, 
Apparently, it had found a bench seat to its liking. Needless to say, that foreclosed the possibility of me venturing outside to shut the door. We didn't discuss it, but we both stayed in the den that night. Lucy on the couch, me in the recliner, with my axe across my lap. I just didn't feel right going into our bedroom, where we couldn't see anything going on out front. Every so often during the night, one of the wolves would scuttle up on the porch, and a few times I heard it sniffing at the front door. Once, there was a loud bang at the back door, as if something had thrown itself against it, testing its strength, but nothing else came of it. Needless to say, it was a fairly sleepless night. The next morning, it was still snowing. There was nearly two feet of accumulation already. I discovered another bad omen when I checked on Lucy. The flesh around her wound was swollen and angry-looking, hot to the touch. It appeared as though an infection was setting in. I cleaned and redressed it, and not knowing what else to do, I made us breakfast. Lucy only managed to eat a few bites. I saw something interesting out the front window, though. The dead wolf was completely covered with snow, and there were two wolves resting near where its body had been, watching the cabin. The interesting thing was that neither of the wolves was the large one that stood up and stared at me through the kitchen window. I looked around. Couldn't see him anywhere. Also, both the wolves from yesterday had been grayish-brown. One of the wolves lying in our drive there was more reddish in color. I didn't quite know what to make of it, whether it was good that the big one was gone or bad that another wolf had shown up. In the end, I decided that it didn't really matter. Either way, we were still stuck in the cabin, and the snow was still falling. By then, I'd begun to question the initial assumption I'd made about the wolves being rabid. It was understandable that I had, given what we'd seen of the skunks, and that the wolves were foaming at the mouth. Rabbit animals didn't congregate, though, not even pack animals. Rabbit animals went crazy and wandered off alone, attacking any other animal they came across. That wasn't what these wolves were doing at all. Aside from the fact that one of them attacked Lucy, they'd remained calm, calculating. It was extremely unusual for them to stay in our yard watching us, as though they were waiting us out. But that wasn't the same as crazy. I began to wonder if maybe they'd contracted something else, something maybe akin to rabies, but more sinister. Lucy grew even more listless throughout the day, and the infection around her wound seemed to be getting worse. I tried to be judicious in using our wood, but by the middle of the afternoon... I had to put the last stick in the stove. I didn't relish the prospect of going outside, particularly with the snow still falling and diminishing my view, but I also didn't think we'd be able to make it through the night without a fire. The weatherman said overnight temperature was going to be close to zero, and given Lucy's worsening condition, we needed heat if we were going to survive. As I watched our last stick of wood burn itself away, and knowing that I didn't really have a choice, I finally found the courage to venture out. First, I went to the front door and looked. 
Both wolves were still lying where they'd been. Then I went to the kitchen door and watched through its window for several minutes, trying to be as sure as I could that there was nothing moving out there. I only saw trees and snow, so slowly, as quietly as I could, I unlocked the door and turned the knob. The old hinges creaked softly as I slowly opened the door, just wide enough so I could pass, and then I stepped outside into the snow. Still nothing. So carefully, cautiously, I stepped my way to the woodpile. I still seemed to be alone once I got there, so I began gathering a load of wood in my arms. Once I gathered as much as I could reasonably carry, I turned to make my way back. My breath caught my throat, however, as the large wolf walked into my view from behind the cabin. I froze, and after a moment, the large animal sat, resting on his haunches, looking right at me. I'd expected him to charge, but he hadn't. I expected the other two wolves to come rushing at me from the drive, but they hadn't. Everything was still. Everything was quiet. Finally, out of necessity, I started to breathe again. I calculated that I was no closer to the kitchen door than the wolf was, so there was no way I could beat him there should it become a race. Instead, and for lacking of anything else to do, I took a slow, steady step, then another. The wolf only watched me. I took another step, and the wolf stood, his eyes still leveled on mine. If he wanted me, he had me. There was no questioning it. So, because I had no choice, I took yet another step. The wolf held his ground, as he did as I walked the rest of the way to the cabin and through the door. Once inside, I dropped the wood to the floor and slammed the door behind me. My heart was rattling in my chest. Once I regained my composure, I peered out the window, but the large wolf was gone. I went to the den to look out front and discovered that the two smaller wolves were gone as well. In their place, though, was a young bull moose, he was standing in our drive facing the cabin. Before I had time to consider it, the moose started coming, running directly at my window. It occurred to me that in that small space of time, that if he wanted to, he could crash right through the glass, leaving us with no barrier at all to the outside. Before I lurched for cover, however, the large wolf came flashing from behind the cardboard and caught the moose by the front shoulder sending him crashing to the ground. Just as fast, one of the other wolves joined in and took the moose by the throat, pinching shut his windpipe. It was a struggle, but only a brief one, and then the moose lay still. Only then did the massive wolf rip into the belly of the moose and begin to eat. After he'd had his fill, he raised his head, showing me his bloody muzzle, and then he walked away. Once he'd gone from sight, the other wolf, the one with the reddish coat, joined the other, and the two of them ate their fill before lying down next to the poor beast they'd just killed. I actually had a fleeting thought that maybe, just maybe since they'd eaten, they might lose interest in us and move along. But no, they weren't leaving, were they? They were staying right there watching us and waiting. This was insanity. 
What in the name of God was going on? I screamed at the wolves. I screamed at the top of my lungs for them to leave us alone. But they didn't. Of course they didn't. They just continued to lie there in the snow next to the slain moose, watching the cabin. It snowed for the rest of the day. Lucy's condition seemed to be deteriorating. She was growing more listless and didn't show any interest at all in eating supper. I called the sheriff again, pleading for him to come help us, begging him to do something, but he only explained to me in as calm a voice as he could muster what I already knew. There was nothing he could do. Everything in our part of Maine was shut in. None of the roads were passable, and there was no way a helicopter could fly in the storm. He stayed on the phone with me, though, until I managed to get a hold of myself. For that part, at least, I was grateful. At least we'd be warm, I told myself, and aside from Lucy's health, we didn't appear to be in imminent danger. She'd stopped making sense, though, uh, had moved closer and closer to delirium. What was this disease these wolves had, anyway? Was it new? Were they even sick at all, or was it something else? What was to become of Lucy if we didn't get her medical help soon? The infection seems to be getting worse, and she developed a fever. Would she lose her leg for life, or would she become like them? Was it possible that she'd soon become a danger to herself, to me? By then, I'd hardly slept in two days. Mercifully, though, that evening I managed to fall into a deep sleep there on my recliner. I only woke up once during the night that I can recall. I'd awakened to the chorus of the three wolves howling in our front yard. But that hadn't been the scary part. The scary part was finding Lucy standing still as a stone right next to my chair looking down at me. Once I'd found my center, I more or less led her back to the couch. I'm not sure she'd even known she'd been up. Only after she appeared to go to sleep did I dare close my eyes again. Anyway, that brings us to this morning. I woke up to the still falling snow, feeling something like resolve. Resolve that today was the day I had to do something about our situation. This just couldn't go on indefinitely. There had to be something I could do. The weatherman on the local station was talking about record snows, using the word like unprecedented and no end in sight. It was unbelievable. I had to do something. I simply had to. I convinced myself that maybe, just maybe, I could make my way down our little road in our truck. Maybe the depth of snow would serve as sort of an immediate, all-enclosing guardrail that would allow me to navigate my way off the mountain and to make it to somewhere, anywhere. Maybe I could do it. I just had to be willing to give it a go. I tried to rouse Lucy to discuss my plan, but I couldn't get her to wake up. Also, her fever seemed to be getting worse. All the more reason for me to get us off the mountain. I remember that Lucy's door had been open all this time, so the truck's battery would be dead as a doornail. I went to the pantry and found our battery charger, plugged in as it always was for emergencies. 
though I'm pretty sure that neither I nor any other person who'd ever been there had ever imagined an emergency like this one. I told Lucy what I was about to do, even though I knew she probably wasn't hearing me. It gave me comfort to tell her. I went to the front door, and as fate would have it, none of the wolves were lying in the drive as they had been yesterday. There was only the moose, half-eaten and bloody. The wolves were nowhere to be seen. My plan was to carry the battery charger and my axe in a quick dash to the passenger door, close myself in the cab, and figure it out from there. It might take a while to get it all done, but I'd persevere. I had to. Our lives depended on it. Once I satisfied myself that it was safe, I reached to the doorknob and gave it a slow turn. Just as I took one step onto the porch, however, I saw one of the wolves rise up from inside our truck. My heart sank, but that immediately became of lesser concern. I heard it before I saw it, a blur of reddish fur and teeth coming at me from the left. Before I could react at all, the wolf had latched its foamy mouth on my left hand, sending my axe skittering across the porch and into the yard. I was stunned and immediately began trying to yank my hand free, but the wolf wasn't inclined to let me loose. Panic swept over me. I could feel its teeth grinding against the bones of my hand. Then I saw it, though, and the pain in my hand became secondary to the fear that came bursting from my heart. There was a gash across the top of the wolf's head, and I don't mean an old scar. It was a fresh gash, a good six inches long and several inches wide. It was the gash I'd made with my axe just two days before. I could see its brain, the damaged brain, between the ridges of fur and bone. But how could that be? How could it possibly be? This wolf was dead. I'd seen it. I'd killed it. And here it was on my porch, tearing away at my hand. I knew I had to get loose, but it didn't appear I was strong enough to wrench my hand from its jaws. I'd lost my axe, but the weight I felt in my other hand was my battery charger. On instinct, I swung the charger around and crashed it down on the wolf's head on its already broken skull. It made a small yelping sound, but more importantly, the wolf loosened its grip ever so slightly on my hand, enough for me to pull it free. I leapt back inside the cabin and slammed the door behind me. My hand was shredded, flesh ripped on top and on bottom, could see bloody bone in several places. I noticed Lucy on the couch. She hadn't stirred at all. My adrenaline was fueling me, but still, I knew that I had to clean my wounds. I went to the sink and gave my hand a thorough washing, ignoring the pain, and then I wrapped it in a clean cup towel before heading back to the den where I'd left the first aid kit. I sat in my chair, the kid opened before me on the coffee table. But then I looked at my wife, still unconscious on the couch, bloody pus oozing from her still open wound. All at once, an unfamiliar darkness swept over me. I'm sure I must have been in some state of shock as well, as being mentally exhausted. But the thought that came to me clear as day was this. I was staring at my immediate future. 
My wife, that nasty wound. The incoherence, now the unconsciousness. And it was still snowing. Still snowing. The wolves were still outside. And it was still snowing. I started to call the sheriff again, out of a general delusion of hopefulness, that most of us in this country grow up with. Things would always turn out, wouldn't they? But I'd just been attacked by a dead wolf. Somehow, calling the sheriff just didn't seem that important. I tossed my phone on the table, reclined back in my chair, and closed my eyes. I hope you enjoyed The Wolves by author Word Dogger. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. And get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. 
and don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) 